Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. We have a great guest on the show today, but before I tell you about him, let me tell you about Podia. Podia is like an amazing Swiss Army knife for selling anything online. It's an all-in-one digital storefront where you can sell courses, memberships, and digital downloads all in one place. The cool thing about Podia is that they eliminate all of the technical headaches. You don't have to install anything. You can host your sales pages there, your files, your checkout process. You can even do your email marketing and newsletters right from Podia. Fizzle Show listeners get 15% off of Podia for life by signing up for a free trial over at podia.com slash fizzle. That's P-O-D-I-A dot com slash fizzle. Thanks to Podia for sponsoring The Fizzle Show and for supporting independent entrepreneurs like you and me. Hey there, welcome to The Fizzle Show. I'm your host, Corbett Barr, and this is our podcast about earning a living independently doing something you really care about. Our guest today is Scott H. Young, author of the new Wall Street Journal bestselling book called Ultra Learning, which promises to help you master hard skills, outsmart the competition, and accelerate your career. Scott describes ultra learning as a strategy for aggressive, self-directed learning. Scott has also written over a thousand articles over the past decade plus on his blog at scotthyoung.com. He describes himself as a writer, programmer, traveler, and avid reader. Today, we're going to talk about learning new skills, staying relevant, and reinventing yourself. Scott, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, yeah. It's great to be here. Happy to have you on, finally. Uh, I got to see a little bit of the behind the scenes as you were gearing up for the book launch, and congrats on making the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah, we got to have a nice little conversation before all that happened, uh, I think, in June. Yeah, and, and the book just came out in August, correct? Yes, yes. So it was very recent. Very recent. And mm-hmm. um, we were talking just to warm up here about how important it is as an entrepreneur to be able to learn new skills because all of us, when we jump from career life to building our own business, have to learn so many new things. It really becomes the deciding factor in a lot of ways. Uh, you've been an entrepreneur for over a decade now. What mm-hmm. has learning meant to you? Oh, well, you know, you've hit the nail on the head as an entrepreneur, especially when you're entering into this kind of entrepreneurship where you can't just hire a million people to fix all the things that you don't know. I think that being an entrepreneur is constantly learning. And so some people, I think, have this sort of background impression. Whenever you bring up the topic of learning, they think about studying for exams in school and maybe they had a good experience with it. Maybe they didn't. But they think, you know what, that's that's all behind me. I'm not doing that right now. I'm actually, you know, trying to earn a living. I'm trying to start a business. But the truth is, is that if you're doing those things, you're learning way more than you were learning in school. I'm sure that a lot of the people listening to this right now feel overwhelmed with all the millions of things that they feel like they have to know and be good at in order to succeed in their business. Yeah, 100%. I mean, um, just thinking about when you jump into building a business, if you've been in a career before, this is the interesting thing. I've worked with a lot of people uh, with backgrounds in business school, either undergrad or MBAs. Mm -hmm. And you, you have this sense that you know what running a business is, 
But in reality, you have very little idea what it means to actually start a business. Those are very different things. Just because you worked in a business and and maybe you were even successful in that business and the the you know playing the politics and um, doing your particular job very well. Running or being in a, a giant business is so much different than getting a small business off the ground. And, you know, just from day one, you have to realize that I need to learn about uh, financing and fundraising and building products and uh, growing an audience online and branding and legal stuff. They're all of these different things. And uh, a lot of that just isn't taught in school. So you really have to learn how to learn, right? Isn't that kind of. Um, oh. what being a, a modern, whether you're in a career or running your own business, learning, knowing how to learn is one of the most essential skills we have. Oh, absolutely. Like I have a little story. So this person who came to work with us, she was an accountant and she was used to working in big companies. And then she starts working with us and, uh, there was some issues with the accounting and she was like, well, you know, I'm not quite sure how to do this. And I was sort of like, well, no one else in the company knows how to do it. So you have to just figure it out. And this is kind of how it feels when you start a company. I mean, when I started, you know, doing my, my career as a writer and as an entrepreneur, there's just a million things that you're like, I, I don't know how to do that. I don't know how that works. And you have to just figure it out. And so I think it spend, it pays to spend just a little bit of time trying to understand how learning works and why learning often fails, uh, particularly in the ways that we often think of, you know, spending years in school and then not coming out with useful skills or spending lots of time trying to learn something and not seeming to get much better at it. If you can understand the process of learning, you'll be much better off in improving your career or getting good at anything that really matters to you. You've been uh, writing for how long now? You started writing actually uh, before you were 18, right? Yeah. Yeah, 2006, uh, February 2006. So it's been uh, over 13 years now. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. I think that's how we originally got to know each other, just from the, the mm -hmm. blogosphere, as they used to call it. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you've been able to turn your blog into uh, – career for yourself, right? A, a self-sustaining business. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's been something I've been doing for a while and there was a long time where I was just, you know, solopreneur doing it myself and writing and, you know, making a little bit of money here and there. And then now it's actually a small little company. We have some full-time employees, some regular contractors, people on payroll. I have quarterly meetings where we discuss things on graphs with quadrants. I mean, it feels very professional now, but <laughs> it's certainly been a long process of, of being leading up to this point. Graphs with quadrants. That's how you know you mm -hmm. Yeah, that's how you know you're a real business owner when you have graphs <laughs> with quadrants, right? Exactly. Uh, when when did you become really interested in learning? What's your what's your history been with this? Well, so it's actually interesting because it was related to this idea of entrepreneurship. So I got really interested in the whole self improvement, personal productivity, goal setting because. I had first stumbled upon, like many of the people who might be listening to this right now, I'd first stumbled upon someone who was running a business online by himself, and that was what he did for a living. And this was, you know, growing up in a small town in rural Canada where everyone had very normal jobs. You know, they worked for the government or the mill or something like this. This was just eye-opening. This is like, wait, you can do that? You could just create something, make a little business, and earn enough money just doing whatever you want to do to support yourself. And this was really exciting. But at the same time, it also felt like, how, how the heck do you do that? I mean, this was, you know, again, we're talking about this is even before 2006, when I started my blog. So this was very early days of the internet. So the idea of I want to run a business online, 
was more of a pipe dream than an actual actual reality at this point. And so I was aware that if I wanted to be able to do this, I would have to be good at a lot of things. It was a little bit like, you know, if you want to get into any profession where you know the odds of success aren't super high, you have to do everything in your power to make sure that you're doing what really counts. And so around this time, especially also being in school and stuff, I sort of saw learning as the kind of that's the overall process of improvement itself like how do you get better at things how do you know things new things that you didn't know before that you can know now and so the process of learning things has been something that's always interested me but i think it was always driven by this very practical concern with how do you actually you know build this business do this thing that most people are not successful with so uh what was one of the the first things that you really dug into that that you didn't know before and you just set your mind to to becoming better at it? Definitely. So I think uh one of the things that you know I I was a real starting point for me was just to understand all the stuff related to self-improvement and personal productivity and all those sorts of things. So anyone who has been listening to this and you know, you read every single book on goal setting and productivity and how to set up systems. And I think that there is probably a limit to what you can get from those. But at the same time, if you've never heard about like how to schedule your time and how to be productive, these can be quite helpful ideas. Books like David Allen's Getting Things Done or Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, things like this. And then later it was shifting more in towards psychology and more towards economics and more towards some of these theoretical subjects that aren't quite as obviously practical, but they give you this really good theory for thinking about the kinds of things that you face as an entrepreneur. So if you understand, you know, bits of economics, if you understand bits of psychology, then that really helps when you're thinking about you know, I'm going to make a product to sell, or I'm going to have to try to persuade people or to try to pitch to people, you know, so again, uh, not only from books there, but also from tying that into practical experience. And then obviously, uh, since that sort of continued to go, and then uh, my blog and, and ended up being coming a lot about learning as I was writing about learning, I did some of the big projects that I talk about in this book, things like uh, the MIT challenge and, and the Earth on English. What is, so the MIT challenge, I remember when you were going through this, this was pretty exciting. Right. And, um, one of those things that not a lot of people I think are aware is even a possibility, but for people who aren't familiar, explain what that challenge was. Sure. So like you were mentioning before, uh, you were talking about business school education and that was what I studied in university. Again, going in with this idea of I want to be an entrepreneur, so I better study business and business school. And it's only after, you know, going through a couple years of business school in university that you start to think to yourself, oh, wait, this is mostly how do you do things in a big organization, you know, follow standard operating procedures, be a good little middle manager, not really so much about how to start your own company. I mean, there was a few good ideas, but definitely not like this is what I wanted to major in. And so at the time I was thinking, I kind of wanted to learn computer science. I mean, if you look at the people who are great entrepreneurs these days that are coming out of school, there are people like, you know, Sergey Brin and, and Larry Page and um, people like Steve Wozniak, Steve Jobs, people like Bill Gates. These are all people that were working with technology that even if they weren't themselves programmers, they still understood technology, still understood software, still understood these things. And I was, you know, doing all of my entrepreneurship stuff online. So it seemed very natural to me that understanding how the whole infrastructure that makes this possible works would be valuable. 
And so I was thinking about going back to school. I was thinking about, you know what, maybe I could go back and do another four-year degree in computer science. But I mean, when you've just graduated from college, that doesn't really sound super appealing, does it? You don't really want to go back for another four years. And so around this time, I stumbled upon this class that was taught by MIT and uploaded online for free. It was a computer science class taught at MIT, and it had the actual lectures from the actual classroom, actual assignments with the solution keys, even the final exams were posted online and just anyone could take this. And as I was going through the class, I was like, oh, wow, this is really good. Like, you know, this is one of the best schools in the world and I'm, I'm learning it for free here at home. And as I was looking around, I noticed that it wasn't just one class they had. They had many, many, many classes that they had at least some of the materials uploaded online. And so this kind of got the gears spinning a little bit in my head and, and the gears were sort of saying, well, you know, maybe you could try to do something that's similar to a degree to learn computer science, but instead of going to school, you just use these resources that they've so generously put online for free. And so this kind of started this idea of this project I later called the MIT Challenge, which was to try to pass MIT's final exams for their four-year computer science uh, curriculum and also try to do the programming projects. And as I was going through it, I started to notice, you know what, now that you're not in school, now that I'm sort of taking up this process independently, there's a lot of things that I can do that a regular student can't do. So one of the things, if you listen to podcasts, you're probably aware of this, is that if you listen to a recording, you can watch it at one and a half or two times the speed. And that's not as much of a problem with a recording because if you don't hear something, you can just pause it and rewind. Whereas in a lecture, if you miss something, they've already said that, that's done. Or similarly, when you're doing assignments, normally you have to finish an assignment, let's say there's like 15 questions on it, you have to finish the whole assignment, you submit it, and you wait a week to get back whether you got it right or wrong. Whereas if you're doing it at home and you have the solution key, you can just go one at a time. You just do one question, get the answer. One question, get the answer. And so you can very quickly learn from your mistakes. And so using this and some other methods that I talk about in the book, I decided, you know what, let's try to do something a little bit uh, different. And and so the MIT challenge, uh, I wanted to see if I could pass the final exams and do the programming projects instead of over four years. I wanted to see if I could do it in 12 months. And this was a project that I started in uh, October 2011 and completed in September 2012. And how did it go? Well, I, I finished it. So I think <laughs> it went fairly well. I mean, I think there's definitely differences from how I approach things to how an MIT student did. So yeah. I'm always hesitant when some people will comment on it like, and Scott got a degree from MIT. Oh, okay, I didn't get a degree. I learned some of the content. But I think, you know, this was for me really just sort of an eye opener because the whole idea that you could take one of the best schools in the world, figure out what they're teaching and learn basically the exact same stuff yeah. for less than $2,000, uh, you know, without having to travel or take out student debt. I mean, just that this was a possibility was very eye-opening for me. And that kind of led me to pursuing this interest in ultra learning or, or interest in people who, you know, really master hard skills like computer science, uh, you know, using unusual methods that are often more effective. Well, and, and, you know, obviously you had already been through college. You didn't necessarily want or need to go through another four years of college to get one piece of it, which for you at yeah. the time was computer science. So in some ways you were able to condense it. Um, did you end up passing those, those final exams? Yeah, so that was my benchmark was to see if I could pass the final exams. And I mean, there is a, introducing a little bit of subjectivity because I have to grade my own exams, but I did upload them online so everyone can kind of see what I'm yeah. doing there. 
And so I think that it's probably I like people ask, okay, what grade did you get? And I think that's probably too specific just because there's some element of subjectivity introduced. So I usually say that my aim was to pass the exams and, yeah. I, and I would say that I did that. And and you must have been um, taking a lot of your time during that year on this particular challenge. So it's funny that you mentioned that because yes, it was a lot of work. And so occasionally I get emails from people. I mean, this is something I did eight years ago. So I've gotten a lot of emails since and, and, and occasionally I get emails from someone, I'm working a full-time job. Do you think I could do this uh, in a year part-time? And I'm just kind of like, well, this was, this was challenging for me to do full-time in a year. So, I mean, you're welcome to prove me wrong, but I think that would be challenging. So I do get some people that approach it from that perspective, but then I have people that approach it from the perspective of, oh, well, you must've had no life at all. You must have been working nonstop. It must have been so grueling and arduous. And I, I was starting studying hard and I did have a, a difficult schedule. But when I think about it, comparing it to what a lot of traditional students go through when they're studying for their degree. I mean, I definitely didn't work harder than medical students who are getting their doctorate, right. their, their, their MD. I definitely didn't work harder than, like my sister is studying architecture. I definitely didn't put as many hours in per week than she's putting in and she's putting in all nighters to get her architecture degree. So I think the thing that is interesting about a project like this is not like, obviously you have to work hard if you're going to learn things, but at the same time is just that uh, many people put in more effort to other goals that are kind of socially sanctioned, like people around them say, oh, yes, you should spend a lot of time doing this. And I think cultivating the ability to learn things and work on hard projects that people around you aren't telling you that you have to do is so valuable, especially we're talking about entrepreneurship here, because you decide to start an online business and people around you may not tell you, oh, you need to work really hard at it. That motivation has to come from within. So I think there was definitely a synergy with the you know drive to start my own business business and the drive to do projects like this was coming from, you know, deciding something was important, working hard on it, certainly, uh, but also working hard on it in spite of the fact that, you know, there aren't classmates around me or people telling me I have to work on it. So this challenge was about a year long. And and how cool <laughs> is it that MIT publishes all of that information for free? I think some other schools do it as well. I think Stanford yeah. does something like that as well. And it's amazing. I mean, you know, tuition is insanely expensive. Uh, giving up four years of your life, living somewhere else, all that kind of stuff is, um, is not an option for a lot of people, but the information is out there. And, um, sure, maybe you don't have a full fledged computer science degree from MIT, but you know, 90% of what, you know, people who were actually there for those studies know. And that's an amazing thing that you can do that for free. Um, so you did this, that took a year. You also did another challenge, which maybe we'll talk about in a bit, uh, which was a year without English, where you were learning different languages. In both of those cases, those were things that you committed to for a year. And mm -hmm. some people listening to this might say, that's great, but I don't have a year, or I have this mm -hmm. problem in front of me that, that I need to solve in a couple of months, not a year or two. Um, the, the, the things that you've learned about learning, mm -hmm. can they apply to something I can pick up in a week or two as well? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's another thing is that, you know, these projects that I, I, some of these projects I've done have been kind of big and somewhat dramatic. But obviously, when you're learning things in your own life, often 
Often you don't need a whole degree's worth of information. Maybe you just need what would be contained in a single class or a single book. And maybe what you need is a lot smaller in scope. I think particularly as an entrepreneur, often you need to learn skills, but it's not necessarily an entirely new profession. It's maybe just, okay, I need to get really good at this thing and let's you know spend a weekend to really figure it out. And so I think the same principles of learning definitely apply and some of the, the same ideas that I talk about in my book, they matter, they're, they're gonna be important for you regardless of what your schedule is like. So the way I like to think about it is there's three main ways you can apply this sort of mindset towards learning. So one is if you do have some chunks of time that you have off, so you have some, you know, breaks between employment or you've decided, you know, you're going to spend three months to start your business and you just want to get it on on roaded and you're going to be working full time. You can do that. You can work part time on projects. Certainly many of the people listening to this right now might be starting their businesses in their spare time. So that's sort of already what they're doing as a learning project. And then finally, it's the fact that we're always learning things constantly. You're always spending some time figuring out new things, learning new skills, trying to grow your business, trying to learn marketing, trying to learn sales, trying to learn accounting, trying to learn software. You're always doing that. And so if you understand the principles for how learning work, you can take that same time you're spending to get better at things and just figure out ways to make it a little bit more optimal, a little bit more efficient. The, you have a bunch of examples in the book of people who have uh, done incredible things in relatively short periods of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know that you talk about Tristan... Um, De Montebello, yes. Yeah, Tristan De Montebello. <laughs> um, tell us a little bit about that, because that was a, a relatively quick turnaround. Yeah, so Tristan was a guy that I met about, oh, I think it's probably about like 10 years ago now. And we had met in Paris. He was working for a startup that did cashmere sweaters at the time. And we just kind of formed a little friendship and and we kind of kept in touch over the years. And then as I was preparing for writing this book, I was looking for people who wanted to try this approach to learning things because I had gathered a lot of really great stories, a lot of really compelling examples of people who've just done incredible things uh, in short periods of time by applying this idea that I call ultra learning. But I had not really, you know, seen someone who you know, they've never done something like this before. And what would they do if they tried it? And so I got a small group of people together and Tristan was one of these guys. And so he was talking to me and at first we're sort of like, okay, what kind of thing would you like to learn? And he was saying, well, maybe I'd like to learn piano. And we kind of went back and forth and eventually he came back to me and said, you know what? I'd like to get better at public speaking. I said, okay, that's interesting. You know, public speaking is a skill. I'm sure many of the people listening to this right now would like to be better public speakers. It's a very useful skill for all sorts of professions, right? Regardless of whether you're an entrepreneur or working in a career, being a better presenter, being a better speaker is very valuable. And so he went to work and he approached it with kind of an obsession and an intensity. And the amazing thing, this is something that just like the result just totally blew our mind is that in seven months, he went from having almost no experience public speaking at all. Like he had done like one or two speeches before, uh, outside of university he went from almost no experience to being a finalist for the world championship of public speaking, uh, which is an event uh, put on by Toastmasters every year. So basically, I think there's about 32,000 people that compete every year. And he, in this sort of time span, like elimination style, worked up the ranks and got in the top 10 uh, for this competition. 
just sort of by applying the kinds of approaches towards feedback and aggressive practice and drilling down on his weaknesses and and this sort of overall approach that uh, that I talk about for learning. That that's incredible. I mean, here here I am. You know, I've done talks on and off. Uh, you know, for the past ten or fifteen years, and just. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's always such a chore and I never feel like I'm, I'm great at it. And it's something I would learn I would love to be really good at. We, we talked about this, I think actually in Portland, yeah. uh, six months ago or so, mm-hmm. or a few months ago, uh, just, you know, how people who speak regularly, like once or twice a month, they mm-hmm. seem to have enough time to commit to becoming better at it. Um, but most of the people that we know who are good at it have taken five or 10 years to really, you know, get their, their skills yeah. under them. So in, in Tristan's case, like give us some highlights, like what, what can we do to shorten that period of, I think most of us, when we, when we set out to learn something, we kind of just fumble through and, um, and never really get materially better at something. So what 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 are the what are some of the secrets? Give us the goods, Scott. Right, right. <laughs> so I would say the first approach and this is like it's going to sound obvious when I say it, but I want you to think about this when you're thinking about the thing that you're trying to learn because often the obvious things that well when you when you see it explained to you, yeah, that makes sense, that would work, but yet you don't do it, right? And so in this case, I think one of the 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 main thing that Tristan did that most people don't do is that he spoke like crazy. Like he was giving speeches, like sometimes he was giving two speeches a day. Like he was giving like six speeches a week. It's going to Toastmasters clubs, speaking, 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 driving around LA. That's where he was living at the time, going to all these different clubs, giving different speeches. And so if you think about how the average speaker improves their speaking ability, it's exactly like you talk about. Okay, I've got a big speech coming up in a month. You prepare, you prepare, you prepare, you rehearse, you rehearse, you give that speech, you get that one bit of feedback. Okay, you're done. Then maybe a couple months from now, you get invited to a different conference. Okay, and then you prepare either a new speech or you modify the old speech and you do it again. And some people do get into the rhythm of speaking frequently enough that they do get good. But it's it's like, as you said, it's happening once or twice a month and they get good over five to ten years. Now, if you just take all those speeches <laughs> and you compress it so that instead of speaking once or twice a month, you're speaking six to seven times a week – now, all of a sudden, it makes sense that you would appreciate your your abilities as a speaker would grow. Now, that's not the only thing he did. He videotaped every single one of his performances and, and looked over it and sort of noticed what he was doing well, what he doesn't wasn't doing well, what the audiences respond to, what they weren't responding to, how many of us go through our past performances with such a critical eye. He had a coach and he also talked to people in different disciplines. So. He had a friend who was a director in Hollywood. He joined an improv group. He was working with a guy who does like theater, sort of stage present stuff. And so each of these were working on different sub skills of his performance. He was, you know, handcrafting a speech, working on it. But I think the the sort of the high level idea, even though there's a lot of these details that are involved in improving the skill, but the high level idea was that he decided, you know what, I'm going to take this project. I'm going to learn it intensively. I'm going to set aside the time to get really good at it. And the the crazy thing was, is it wasn't just that he got, you know, top 10 in this uh, public speaking competition, but he ended up totally changing his career. He ended up him and the person who was coaching him decided to go together and start a consultancy company to help other people improve their public speaking ability or improve the speeches they give. And I mean, he was booking five figure clients after this and totally changed his career path. So the thing I want to leave people is, you know, yes, there's different ways you can approach it. You don't have to do it in seven months the way that Tristan did. But I think 
opening yourself up to the fact that this is possible. The fact that, you know, instead of trying to do this degree over the four years and do things in the exact same way that everyone does it, what will be some way that you could get the same ideas and cover it in less time? Or what will be some way that you could turn up the practice? What will be some way you could increase the feedback you're getting? These are all approaches that you can think about when applying to improve skills in your business. You know, I, I knew a guy and I think, well, you know him as he was someone you worked with, um, Leo Bobauta, who mm -hmm. uh, writes for Zen Habits. And I remember when he was starting his blog, so he, everyone knows him as a very successful blogger, but I remember when he was starting his blog because we were friends uh, back then, you know, uh, like 12 years ago. And he was writing like 10 times a week. How many new writers write 10 new articles a week? So this isn't to say that you have to do it exactly this way, but I think there's something worth exploring here about if there's something really important to you, whether it's starting your business, whether it's becoming a writer, whether it's becoming a good speaker, whether it's learning some new skill, often if you understand what ingredients go into learning successfully, you can engineer a project like Tristan's or like how Leo Bauta handled the beginning part of his career and really generate pretty spectacular results. I love this because uh, this this principle of in 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 Tristan's case, I'm sure that there were several principles that he was following that that you highlighted mm -hmm. there that that maybe I'm skipping over and 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 we yeah. should call those out specifically. But the one that stands out to me is this idea of getting as much feedback as possible in in a compressed period of time. And mm -hmm. uh, in Tristan's case, you pointed out that he had a coach. So he was getting mm -hmm. feedback from the coach. He mm -hmm. was watching his own videos. So he was able to give himself feedback. And then he also was in front of real live audiences and getting feedback from those people at the same time. So he had this like fire hose of feedback happening. And mm -hmm. I love this because this relates so much to entrepreneurship when we talk to people about building businesses, we try to impress upon them that one of the most important things you can do is to have conversations with real potential customers and to put something real in front of them that they can give you actual genuine feedback about. Because, you know, sometimes when you're just talking in theory about, hey, I'm thinking about starting this business, what do you think about it? Somebody will give you a little bit of feedback, but it's not the genuine article. They're not able to say, oh, well, this software that you made doesn't serve me because of X, Y, and Z. So that's sort of the point of putting out a minimum viable product and trying to get it in people's hands quickly. So I, I love the parallels between learning something quickly and getting as much feedback as possible and building a business and trying to get as much um, as possible. So well, go, mm -hmm. go ahead. I was just going to say, so you, you hit the nail on the head here with um, the idea that feedback is very important. And I think one of the important sort of subcomponents of that to talk about is, you know, why do most people not do this? And they don't do it because getting feedback is often uncomfortable. You don't want to talk to someone and have them critique you. You don't want to work hard on something and have it fail. You don't want to give a speech and hear crickets at the end. But at the same time, this sort of fear you have of it is often what prevents you from really immersing yourself or really engaging in that deep practice that will create improvement. So people like Tristan who engage in these kinds of projects, these ultra learning projects, can often benefit from the fact that when you're speaking six times a day, you are completely immune to that feeling of, of stage fright just because 
well, this is speech number seven this week. So it, it just kind of that fades away. And so I think for a lot of people, there's a lot of these little ingredients to learning. And, and so I kind of cover these nine principles of ultra learning in the book. And I think if you go through them and think about them, you can kind of diagnose your own projects you're working on. You can look at, you know, the business you're starting or the thing that you're trying to get good at. And look at, okay, what am I doing on a day-to-day basis to get good at this? And then run it by these sort of nine things. And you might notice, oh, I'm doing this, but it's, you know, it's violating this sort of cognitive science principle of learning, which is going to make it harder for me to really excel at that. And I think the more you can line up with the principles of how your mind works, the principles of how learning really works at that deep down brain level, you're going to have a lot more success with the kinds of projects that you undertake because you're not going to spend months and months working on something only to find out, hmm, didn't actually get much better at that. Yeah. Do you, uh, we often talk about this, the difference between just in time learning versus just in Mm -hmm. case learning. Yeah. Is this something that, um, comes up when, when you're trying to learn something, you know, like you brought up the, the issue of going through four years of college and getting out the other Mm -hmm. side and not feeling like you have any particular skills. And a lot of times Mm -hmm. I remember being in school and feeling like, what's the point of learning? Like, why are they teaching us (laughs) this? It just doesn't have any relevance. But if you sit down in front of uh, a problem and you need to find an answer to solve that problem right now, it just seems like it sticks so much more. Mm -hmm. Was this something that came up in your research? So you're absolutely right. And one of the things that, uh, that was a huge piece of research that I talked about is this principle of directness. And basically it is that there has been a hundred years plus of research showing that people are very bad at something that is known as transfer. So transfer is when you learn something in one context, let's say a classroom, and then you want to apply it in another context, say in real life. And it turns out that people tend to be bad at this, that if you you know, take students, put them through four years of school, or you take them through a class and you teach them some concepts and then give them a question, which is, you know, should, if you understand it deeply, should really, you know, well, obviously use the thing that you learn. People often don't. And so uh, this is a very interesting question because I think the right way to approach learning very often is what you're talking about, where you encounter real problems or you're involved in some kind of direct practice environment, and then you learn things as you need to. So we haven't really talked about it uh, so much yet, but uh, a big project I did was this year without English learning languages. And one of the ways of doing this was just to learn through immersion, through actually speaking. And that way you learn words because you need to use them and not because they were on some vocabulary list. Now, I want to say one caveat of that, because I think my opinion on this is actually somewhat nuanced. I think there's two ways to look at learning. So one of them is the way you talked about which is a kind of bottom-up driven just-in-time learning where you learn things as you need them. And certainly as an entrepreneur, this is the dominant way that you're going to be learning skills because there's so much to learn that the best way to prioritize it is what do I need right now? What do I need to get this business up and running? Let's worry about mastering it later. However, and this is something that I've noticed in myself, is that One of the things that there is a benefit from the opposite kind of learning, sort of top down, where you sort of learn some theory and then you're kind of like, okay, you know, where can I use this? This is uh, also useful because sometimes and one of the things I talk about in this book is this uh, principle of intuition, which is that 
if you have more knowledge, if you have learned more things through experience, through exposure, through doing practice, through feedback, all the things that we're talking about, you build more and more patterns inside your head. And as you build more and more patterns inside your head, you learn to see the solution to problems that were invisible before. So there's some great studies of this with uh, chess grandmasters. And basically, a lot of people think chess grandmasters are looking at the chessboard and they're just like, you know, they're just imagining the gears whirring in their head as they're like working through all the kajillion possibilities that have the moves unfolding and calculating the right one. And it turns out that this isn't how grandmasters actually think. That when they do studies on it, grandmasters, it's not the case that they are thinking so many more moves ahead than a novice player or that they are thinking in terms of all these complicated calculations. Rather, it's the grandmaster has so many patterns that they can see a chessboard and immediately see oh, this is what's happening in terms of, well, there's a pin here, there's a fork here, this move and this move will lead to this move. And these patterns come from experience and they allow them to process that problem. So, so what does that mean for entrepreneurs? Well, it means that when you're getting started and certainly when you are working on the practical necessities of getting your business going, then it's very important to have that learning done, be done from the bottom up driven by what do I need to learn right now to go forward? But I think there's also a place for understanding strategy, understanding, you know, things that are not you're not necessarily going to come across that. But like a great biography of, you know, someone who is running a business or understanding economics or understanding some psychology. These can be very valuable because they allow you to see a problem and a solution that would have just been confusing or, or a muddle before you go into it. So I think that um, the right way to approach learning is to do both, is to drive your learning by the problems you have, but also to be the kind of person that, you know, you're you're always cultivating and expanding your knowledge as it might be relevant to improving your business, whether that's, you know, understanding how economics works, finance, accounting, marketing, psychology. The best entrepreneurs I know are people who have good, keen insights about these things. I'd love to dig in to uh, you and your business a little bit more sure. and, and and how you've applied learning. Uh, mm-hmm. We talked before that you've been running a, a blog-based business, for lack of a better term, an online yeah. business for uh, over a decade now. Um, mm-hmm. And you published this book and were able to get on the Wall Street Journal bestseller list pretty quickly here. That's something that strikes me. Uh, we talked about public speaking and your friend Tristan. That's an incredibly mm-hmm. valuable skill. But writing is also an incredibly valuable skill as an entrepreneur and knowing not just how to write, but also how to get your work out there to get people Mm -hmm. to actually see and recognize your work. You have a built-in audience to some degree on your blog, Mm -hmm. but uh, probably not enough to instantly have a bestseller on your hands. So when you set out to write this book and you knew ahead of time that you wanted it to be in as many hands as possible... What, how did you break this problem down in your mind and, and decide on a course of action? And how did you identify what you needed to learn to make it happen? Sure. So I will go into that, but I want to give my three step pieces of advice for anyone who wants to be a writer, uh, just because I think there's going to be a lot of people here who, you know, they are maybe starting with writing, maybe they see writing as an auxiliary to their entrepreneurial career. Certainly people like myself, yourself, other people have had success using writing to get their business noticed, to, you know, market their work, to explain their ideas, to convince and persuade other people. And so if you were listening to this and you're in that case, I have three steps that I think are important to get better writing. The first is to write a lot. (laughs) So a benchmark for me is that if we're talking about blogging, for instance, is to get the first hundred articles that 
just being able to write a lot, getting that volume of practice, just like Tristan did with the public speaking is so important. The second point is to care about writing well. And it's important that the second point comes after the first point, because some people care about writing well before they've done a lot of writing and that's wrong. But then there's also people that have done a lot of writing and they don't care about writing well, and then they're not going to be improving that much in the long run. And then the third step I would say as a, to become a better writer, once you've done enough writing and once you care about writing well is to care enough about writing well to actually split apart your writing and be willing to spend, you know, months to work on some aspect of it that recognizing you know, I need to get better at research or storytelling or humor or just my, you know, way of phrasing sentences or editing or headlines. And so the people I know that are really good are able to dissect their work and do that kind of analysis. So that would be my, my three-step process for anyone listening to this. For me personally, talking about this book, this book was kind of an ultra learning project for me because I have written on my blog for over a decade. So I'm not unfamiliar with writing, but at the same time, I knew what kind of book I wanted to write. And I knew the gap between what my writing currently was and what kind of writing I wanted to put in the book that I wanted the book to be driven by well-researched stories. I didn't want it to just be, here's my opinion. Here's my opinion. Although I do have my opinion in there. I wanted to be able to back it up with examples and stories. And I also wanted it to be research driven. I didn't want it to be something that, you know, if you were a cognitive science, if you were a professor, if you read the book, you're like, Oh no, this person got it all wrong. I wanted to actually really understand the research and I really cared about trying to get those things at least as close as right as I could within a book of this type. And so I think that that process really setting that intention of this is the kind of book I wanted to write and finding examples of people who I felt had written those kinds of books um, in, uh, in books that I have loved in the past was a real motivator for me of figuring out how could I write that kind of book myself. And so I spent, you know, probably every word that went into this book was, I probably spent about maybe five to 10 times as much time as uh, the typical writing that I was doing on my blog articles and stuff. And so uh, there's, you've mentioned quality, this, the, your, your three steps for, you know, mm -hmm. becoming a better writer. Yeah. You've talked a lot about quality. Um, I think that we talked a little bit uh, a couple of months ago about mm -hmm. titles of books and, and how that matters. Yeah. And, and there are these little things that go into making a book popular that's not necessarily about the words that are within, you know, page two and, and page mm -hmm. 298. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm, I'm guessing that when you set out to make this book all that it could be, you weren't just mm -hmm. thinking about everything that went inside of it, but also how do I engineer this to become as, to, to give it the best chance of succeeding as possible? Um, what, what did you learn about that from, from other authors and, and how did you go about making that happen? Well, one thing that I think, and this is someone who is working on any craft, so whether it's writing or entrepreneurship, is that as the consumer, so someone who reads books, you're often not aware of how many strategic choices that author made when trying to create the book. So for you, it's just an experience. You just read it and you're like, oh, I liked that. I didn't like it. It was about this, right? Um, whereas as the author, you're making a lot of very subtle strategic choices about how do you present it. And so it's interesting for me that sometimes people will make a comment about, um, oh, I liked this or I didn't like this about the book. And they're kind of like thinking that they were just sort of accidental as opposed to, oh, no, no, I thought very hard about wanting to do it this way or another way. And so I think when thinking about books uh, in particular, you know, even just talking to other authors, 
often these sort of subtle details about how you structure your ideas. What is the idea? How are you going to present it? What is what is the sort of, you know, beneath the actual words you write, what is the sort of uh, the type of book you're trying to do? What are you trying to accomplish with it is very important. And as you said, like title and subtitle and, and who the audience is and who you imagine is reading, all of these little subtle decisions are super important. And so very often books uh, fail because either the author um, had a strategy and they executed it poorly, meaning that they had some sense of what they wanted to do, but the book doesn't really achieve that goal, or they picked the wrong goal. So they picked a strategy they thought would work and it turns out not to. So I think these sorts of little details are very important. And it's, it's just like running a business too, that if you, you know, people who, let's say, let's say you're buying an iPhone, right? And be, oh, I like the iPhone or, oh, I prefer Samsung or, oh, I'd, you know, I'd like this or I don't like that. And you don't realize that the people who are making the iPhones and the Samsungs, they are extremely, extremely focused on the strategy of their project and making very calculated decisions about what kinds of things they want to do. So as an entrepreneur, or as a writer, I think it's very important to study other books and really see how did they make this book? What were they trying to accomplish? What was the audience that they were going for? What was the style that they were aiming at? What were the sort of techniques they used to reach their intended strategy? And so that kind of analytical eye, um, I think is often not done when people just say, oh, you know, I'd like to, I'd like to write a book someday. That's something that people will say. And they don't really think about, well, what book would you like to write? And how would you like to you know, achieve that sort of vision? What do you think has a, a better chance of succeeding? A mediocre book with a masterful marketing plan or a, an amazing you know, top-notch book with a mediocre marketing plan? So it depends on what we mean by marketing. So I think... Uh, the, a very important lesson, which uh, one of the few lessons I learned from my business school is that if you look at the four P's of marketing, one of the P's is product, which means that the thing you're selling itself is part of the marketing. And so I think that um, I wouldn't say that. Uh, so when we're talking about marketing, if we're talking about purely from promotion, meaning you're getting a lot of publicity for the book, I don't think that that uh, matters so, so much. It does matter in the sense that if you have zero promotion, your book probably will fail. Um, but if you're beyond a certain threshold, you can get tons of promotion. But if the book idea and what you're selling is not compelling, I know people that have huge, huge audiences, huge email lists, and they write a book and they're very disappointed with the results just because the book didn't connect with the audience. Now, that being said, I think there's a lot of books that maybe they have a technical sophistication or there was a lot of work put into them, but maybe people don't care about that idea or the framing of the idea doesn't entice them. And so I think that's very important. So if we're, we're considering that part of marketing, well then, yes, of course, that's that's essential. If you, if you create a product or you create a book that, you know, when I tell you what the book's about, if you go, eh, like then, then it doesn't work, right? Yeah. It doesn't matter how well you wrote it after that point. But I think at the same time, uh, there are some times where you can think of a book that has a really good, let's say, hook or title, and it doesn't deliver on its promise. And so those ones are mixed because sometimes people will buy a book just on the hook or just on the title, even though the book isn't that great. Um, but I think, you know, if you're already thinking about that, I think you've already lost. I think that the the right way to think about it is that the the sort of high resolution, what's the idea, what's the promise, what's the concept, what's the overall, that's very much embedded into the product. So I don't think that's separable from, is it a good book? It's a good book, but it has bad marketing. 
I mean, it could be a good book and not be promoted very well, but I think that it's very hard to say it's a good book, but the whole concept and, you know, higher level idea of the book was not compelling. <laughs> I think that's probably just a bad book or just a book that's, you know, niche and not like going to have a, a mass audience. Yeah. And I love the parallels between uh, writing a book and, and running a business or, you know, selling mm-hmm. a product. I think there are a lot of things that you just said about the the packaging, the positioning uh, and the product itself and how important that is to marketing that apply to businesses as well as books. Um, I, I'm curious uh, on your thoughts on blogging because you've been doing it for so long mm-hmm. and I know that it's fallen a little bit out of favor um, recently just because yeah. so many people spend so much time on social media and uh, podcasting has really taken off and blogging doesn't have quite mm-hmm. the spotlight that it used to. But yeah. for me, I often tell people that hands down, like the most valuable thing I've done, I think um, you know, in my life and my business career was starting a blog because of not just, uh, the audience that I've been able to grow, but for a number of other reasons as well. Would Mm -hmm. you agree with that? And, um, what are the, the major things that blogging has done for you? So I I think, yeah, one thing I would say, and I think this is important because I used to say, like this was years ago when people asked what I did for a living, I would say I'm a blogger, which is a terrible thing to say when people ask you what you do for a living because it always has kind of like, and you make money from that. Uh, So it's never leaving a really great first impression. But now I tell people when they ask me what I do for a living, I say that I'm a writer. And then, you know, if there's more further questions, I explain that I have my own website and I write for that and that kind of thing. And so I think I would distinguish that question in two parts. So I think you're probably right in terms of blogs as they were, you know, when I started writing back in 2006, that format and that style has certainly fallen into less favor than it was at that time period. It's not an ascendant media anymore, but writing, being able to write well and put your ideas and communicate them with the written word has never been more useful. Now, this isn't to dismiss podcasting. Obviously, you're listening to this in a podcast, and this isn't to dismiss, um, you know, video or, or you know, Instagram has a lot of like, you know, live video or, or these other media. It's not to dismiss those media, but just that I think writing has the highest transmissibility of any format. It's scannable. It's nonlinear. It's something that you can chop up into tweets or you can turn into a book. It's something that can sell, persuade. It can be on any device. And so I think the right way to think about the role of blogging in this new era is maybe blogs in terms of the personal website that you access with the RSS feed. Maybe that's a little bit falling out of favor, but writing certainly isn't. And whether that's through Twitter or Instagram, whether that is through the sales page on your website, whether that is through the emails that you send your customers, uh, writing is super important and super valuable. And so I think cultivating that skill, whatever platform it sits on, is, is going to be super important. And so to talk about myself, I mean, my entire career, my entire business, everything has been built off of the ability to write things that people find interesting or hopefully do. Yeah. And and one of the things that um, I think is is overlooked about the process of writing, you know, people think about, well, is writing useful for growing an audience? And and certainly mm-hmm. it can be if you go about it the right way. But one of the things that, that I've gained from writing that I don't think you can get in other ways very easily is that when you when you spend time on a project, uh, whether it's just a short article or or something longer, like an ebook or even a full book like you did, there is 
there's never an opportunity if you're just living inside your own head, having thoughts about something for you to pour over in such a structured format to gather your thoughts, to organize them, to um, bolster them, to find evidence, you know, that, that supports your ideas and to put those all into this, this structured organized format that you can share with someone else in such a well-articulated fashion. It just helps you to really cement your thinking on any particular topic. Whereas so many people just spend their time walking around, having these random thoughts in their head and then, you know, being distracted by something and moving on to the next thing, or, uh, just spending time on social media and putting out these little, you know, 140 character blurbs about something as opposed to spending, you know, uh, an afternoon or multiple days or multiple months working on one particular thought. Uh, have you noticed that, that your ability to, to form thoughts and, and um, to, to understand what you really feel about something is, has changed because of writing? Absolutely. I think that if you are writing, so I'll get into a little bit of cognitive science here because I think it's useful as an analogy. So one of the things that we know about how the mind works is that there's this concept known as working memory. So when we think about memory, we're typically thinking about recalling events in the past, but that's not what working memory is about. Working memory is kind of, to use the metaphor of its sort of uh, inventor or discoverer, uh, Alan Badley, is that it's like the workbench of the mind. So if you imagine all these sort of raw materials, the nails, the screws, the pieces of lumber that you assemble thoughts out of, it's done on your working memory. That's the workbench. And one of the big findings over the last like 70 years of cognitive science research is that working memory is very limited meaning that we can only handle a couple thoughts, a couple discrete ideas simultaneously. Now, there are ways that we get better at thinking, and as we acquire more patterns, we can have more complicated thoughts, although they tend to be in just a few key parts on the table at the same time. And what writing effectively allows you to do is it allows you to offload ideas on your mind and put them somewhere that you can find them later. And so one of the things that is so valuable here is that when we look at what makes someone intelligent, so if you look at IQ tests and you look at what is someone's mental performance with when it comes to certain things, one of the main criteria, one of the main determinants of that is working memory capacity, that people who are smarter, someone who just says, oh, this person is much smarter than this other person, it often has to do with working memory. And this is something that you don't really have too much ability to change your natural capacity for working memory. So sorry, I don't have any brain training exercise that you can turn yourself into oh, a genius. <laughs> Yeah, I know. But at the same time, at the same time, there is a very simple tool that, again, has existed for thousands of years that can enable this, which is writing. Because when you write, you essentially expand temporarily your working memory, not exactly the same way as if it was in your brain, but in an analogous way so that you can put down ideas and then you can think about some other part of the idea and do something with that and put it down and then go back to the first thing you thought about. And essentially, it expands this workbench. It's like there's an extra little second workbench that you can put some sort of stuff in progress and put it down over there. And so I think this ability of writing to essentially make your thoughts more intelligent is probably one of the most valuable aspects of writing, even beyond just being someone like myself who makes a living from, from producing writing. You could even, if you are not producing writing, you have a business where that's not something that's happening at all. Um, you could be doing something, you know, uh, you, you could be doing something like this where you have a writing 
place, maybe it's a journal, maybe it's something where you are thinking through the hard ideas of your business, thinking through the hard ideas of your life. And really, even before I started blogging, this was such a valuable thing for me to be able to, you know, improve my thoughts and be able to solve hard problems. Scott, this has been amazing. Uh, thank you so much for sharing everything uh, so far in the book. If someone wants to find more about you, if they want to find the book, where should they go? So if you go to my website at scotthyoung.com, that's S-C-O-T-T-H-Y-O-U-N-G.com, you will be able to find not only links to the book, it's available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, Audible. If you're not tired of listening to me talk already, you can listen to me read the book. And if you're interested as well, if you're not sure whether you're going to buy the book just yet, the blog has thousands of articles about entrepreneurship, about writing, about productivity, about goal setting, about self-improvement, about habits, all sorts of topics. So I highly recommend checking it out. Excellent. Scott, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. If you liked today's episode, would you mind either leaving a review in Apple Podcasts or telling somebody about the show? We depend on listeners like you to help us get the word out, and a review or referral is the best way to share your appreciation for the show. As always, you can find the full show notes over at fizzleshow.co. That's fizzleshow.co. I'm Corbett Barr, and until next time, thanks for listening to The Fizzle Show. Fizzle Show.